right, there we are. Happy Halloween. Good to have you back and listening, whoever you are out there. suppose I'll never know. Here we are to continue in Halloween tradition. Great Lovecraft tale, part one, Call of Cthulhu. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And the story begins here with a quote. Found among the papers of the late Francis Wayland Thurston of Boston. Of such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival. Survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested perhaps in the shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity. Forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods. Monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. End quote, Algernon Blackwood. And we commence part one, the horror in clay. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance and in the midst of black seas of infinity. And it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and all of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They've hinted at strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by a bland optimism. But it's not from them that there came the single glimpse of forbidden aeons, which chills me when I think of it and maddens me when I dream of it. That glimpse, like all dead glimpses of truth, flashed out from an accidental piecing together of separated things. In this case, an old newspaper item in the notes of a dead professor. I hope that no one else will accomplish this piecing out. Certainly, if I live, I shall never knowingly supply a link in so hideous a chain. I think that the professor, too, intended to keep silent regarding the part he knew, and that he would have destroyed his notes had not sudden death seized him. My knowledge of the thing began in the winter of 1926-27, with the death of my granduncle George Camelangle, Professor Emeritus of Semitic Languages at Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island. Professor Angle was widely known as an authority on ancient inscriptions, had frequently been resorted to by the heads of prominent museums, so that his passing at the age of 92 may be recalled by many. Locally, interest was intensified by the obscurity of the cause of death. The professor had been stricken whilst returning from the Newport boat, falling suddenly, as witnesses said, after having been jostled by a nautical-looking negro who had come from one of the queer dark courts on the precipitous hillside, which formed a shortcut from the waterfront to the deceased's home on William Street. Physicians were unable to find any visible disorder, but concluded after perplexed debate that some obscure lesion of the heart, induced by the brisk ascent of so steep a hill by so elderly a man, was responsible for the end. At the time, I saw no reason to dissent from this dictum, but latterly I'm inclined to wonder and more than wonder. 
as my granduncle's heir and executor, for he died childless widower. I was expected to go over his papers with some thoroughness, and for that purpose moved his entire set of files and boxes to my quarters in Boston. Much of the material which I correlated will be later published by the American Archaeological Society, but there was one box which I found exceedingly puzzling, and which I felt much averse from shooing to other eyes. It had been locked, and I didn't find the key till it occurred to me to examine the personal ring, which the professor always carried in his pocket. Then, indeed, I succeeded in opening it, but when I did so, it seemed only to be confronted by a greater and more closely locked barrier. For what could be the meaning of queer clay, bass relief, and the disjointed jottings, ramblings, and cuttings which I found? Had my uncle, in his latter years, become credulous of the most superficial impostures? I resolved to search out the eccentric sculptor responsible for this apparent disturbance of an old man's peace of mind. The bass relief was a rough rectangle, less than an inch thick and about five by six inches in area, obviously of modern origin. Its designs, however, were far from modern in atmosphere and suggestion. For though the vagaries of cubism, futurism, are many and wild, they do not often reproduce that cryptic regularity which lurks in prehistoric writing. In writing of some kind, the bulk of the designs seem particularly to be Though my memory, despite much familiarity with the papers and collections of my uncle, failed in any way to identify this particular species, even to hint at its remotest affiliations. Above these apparent hieroglyphics, though, was a figure of evidently pictorial intent, though its impressionistic execution forbade a very clear idea of its nature. It seemed to be a sort of monster, a symbol representing a monster of a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. If I say that my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus, a dragon, and a human caricature, I shall not be unfaithful to the spirit of the thing. A pulpy, tentacled head surrounded by a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings, but it was the general outline of the whole which made it most shockingly frightful. Behind the figure was a vague sensation, uh, suggestion of a cyclopean architectural background. The writing accompanying this oddity was, aside from a stack of press cuttings, in Professor Engel's most recent hand, uh, made no pretense to literary style. What seemed to be the main document was headed Cthulhu Cult, end quote, in characters painstakingly printed to avoid the erroneous reading of a word so unheard of. The manuscript was divided into two sections, the first of which was headed, quote, 1925, Dream and Dream Work of H.A. Wilcox, 7 Thomas St. Street, Providence, Rhode Island. And the second, quote, Narrative of Inspector John R. Legrasse, 121 Bienville Street, New Orleans, L.A., at 1908 AAS MTG. Wasn't sure exactly what that indicated in this context. Notes on same and Professor Webb's account. ACCT, end quote. Anyway, the other manuscript matters were all brief notes. Some of them accounts of the queer dreams of different persons. Some of them citations from the theosophical books and magazines. 
notably W. Scott Elliott's Atlantis and uh, Lost Lemuria. And the rest, uh, comments on long-surviving secret societies and hidden cults, with references to passages in such mythological, mythological uh, anthropological source books as Fraser's Golden Bow and Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe. The cuttings largely alluded to outre mental illness and outbreaks of group folly or mania in the spring of 1925. The first half of the principal manuscript told a very peculiar tale. It appears that on March 1st, 1925, a thin, dark young man of neurotic and excited aspect that called upon Professor Ankle, bearing the singular clay bass relief, which was then exceedingly damp and fresh. His card bore the name of Henry Anthony Wilcox, and my uncle had recognized him as the youngest son of an excellent family slightly known to him who had latterly been studying sculpture at the Rhode Island School of Design, uh, living alone at the Fleur de Lis building near that institution. Uh, Wilcox was a precautious youth of known genius, uh, great eccentricity, and had from childhood excited attention through the strange stories and odd dreams he was in the habit of relating. He called himself uh, psychically hypersensitive, I think it was, but the staid folk of the ancient commercial city dismissed him as merely queer. Never mingling much with his kind, he had dropped gradually from social visibility and was now known only to a small group of aesthetes from other towns. Even the Providence Art Club, anxious to preserve its conservatism, had found him quite hopeless. On the occasion of the visit, ran the professor's manuscript the sculptor abruptly asked for the benefit of his host's archaeological knowledge in identifying the hieroglyphs on the base relief. He spoke in a dreamy, stilted manner which suggested pose and alienated sympathy. My uncle shewed some sharpness in replying. The conspicuous freshness of the tablet implied kinship with anything but archaeology. Young Wilcox's rejoinder, which impressed my uncle enough to make him recall and record it verbatim, was of a fantastically poetic cast, which must have typified his whole conversation, and which I have since found highly characteristic of him. He said, quote, It is new, indeed, for I made it last night in a dream of strange cities, and dreams are older than brooding tire." or the contemplative Sphinx, or garden-girdled Babylon, end quote. <laughs> it was then that he began that rambling tale which uh, suddenly played upon a sleeping memory and won the fevered interest of my uncle. There had been a slight earthquake tremor the night before, the most considerable felt in New England for some years, and Wilcox's imagination had been keenly affected. Upon retiring, he had an unprecedented dream of great cyclopean cities of titan blocks and sky-flung monoliths, all dripping with green ooze and sinister with latent horror. Hieroglyphics had covered the walls of pillars, and from some undetermined point below had come a voice that was not a voice, a chaotic sensation which only fancy would transmute into sound which he attempted to render by the almost unpronounceable jumble of letters, Cthulhu Phileon. 
This verbal jumble was the key to the recollection which excited and disturbed Professor Angle. He questioned the sculptor with scientific minuteness, studied with almost frantic intensity the bas-relief on which the youth had found himself working. Chilled and clad only in his night clothes when waking, it stolen bewilderingly over him. My uncle blamed his old age, uh, Wilcox afterwards said for his slowness in recognizing both hieroglyphics and pictorial design. Many of his questions uh, seemed highly out of place to his visitor, especially those which tried to connect the latter with strange cults or societies. And Wilcox couldn't understand the repeated promises of silence which he was offered in exchange for an admission of membership in some widespread mystical or paganly religious body. When Professor Angle became convinced that the sculptor was indeed ignorant of any cult or system of cryptic lore, he besieged his visitor with demands for future reports of dreams. This bore regular fruit, for after the first interview, the manuscript records the daily calls of the young man, during which he related startling fragments of nocturnal imagery whose burden was always some terrible cyclopean vista of dark and dripping stone with a subterranean voice or intelligence shouting monotonously in enigmatical sense impacts uninscribable save as gibberish. The two sounds most frequently repeated are those rendered by the letters Cthulhu and R apostrophe L-Y-E-H Cthulhu just pause for a minute out of the story. All right. <laughs> what is... Fuck. Never know quite how to pronounce that. All right. I think I'm just going to slightly do the C. Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Cthulhu like that. All right. Cthulhu and Lay. On March 23rd, the manuscript continued. Uh, Wilcox failed to appear. And uh, inquiries at his quarters revealed that he'd been stricken with an obscure sort of fever, uh, taken to the home of his family in Waterman Street. He'd cried out in the night, uh, rousing several other artists in the building, and had manifested since then only alternations of unconsciousness and delirium. My uncle at once telephoned the family, and from that time forward, kept close watch of the case, calling often at the Thayer Street office of Dr. Toby, whom he learned to be in charge. The youth's febrile mind, however, was dwelling on strange things, and the doctor shuddered now, and then as he spoke of them. They included not only a repetition of what he had formerly dreamed, but it touched wildly on a gigantic thing miles high, which walked or lumbered about. He at no time fully described the object, but occasional frantic words, as repeated by Dr. Toby, convinced the professor that it must be identical with the nameless monstrosity he had sought to depict in his dream sculpture. Reference to this object, the doctor added, was invariably a prelude to the young man's subsidence into lethargy. His temperature, oddly enough, was not greatly above normal, but his whole condition was otherwise such as to suggest true fever rather than mental disorder. On April 22nd, at about 3 p.m., 
Every trace of Wilcox's malady suddenly ceased. He sat upright in bed, astonished to find himself at home, and completely ignorant of what had happened in dream or reality since the night of March 22nd. Pronounced well by his physician, and he returned to his quarters in three days, but to Professor Engel, he was of no further assistance. All traces of strange dreaming had vanished with his recovery. My uncle kept no record of his night thoughts after a week of pointless and irrelevant sounds, uh, accounts, thoroughly usual visions. Here, the first part of the manuscript ended, but references to certain of the scattered notes gave me much material for thought, so much, in fact, that only the ingrained scepticism then forming my philosophy can account for my continued distrust of the artist. The notes in question were those descriptive of the dreams and various persons covering the same period as that in which young Wilcox had had his strange visitations. My uncle, it seems, had quickly instituted a prodigiously far-flung body of inquiries against nearly all the friends whom he could question without impertinence asking for nightly reports of their dreams and the dates of any notable visions for some time past. The reception of his request uh, seems to have been varied, but he must at the very least have received more responses than any ordinary man could have handled without a secretary. This original correspondence was not preserved, but his notes formed a thorough and really significant digest. Average people in society and business, uh, New England's traditional salt of the earth, gave an almost completely negative result, though scattered cases of uneasy and formless nocturnal impressions appear here and there, always between March 23rd and April 2nd, for the period of uh, young Wilcox's delirium. Scientific men were a little more affected, uh, though four cases of Vague descriptions suggest fugitive glimpses of strange landscapes. And in one case, there's a mention, a dread of something abnormal. It was from the artists and poets that the pertinent answers came. Uh, I knew that panic would have broken loose had they been able to compare notes. As it was, lacking their original letters, I have suspected the compiler of having asked leading questions or of having edited the correspondence in corroboration of what he had latently resolved to see. That's why I continued to feel that Wilcox, somehow cognizant of the old data which my uncle had possessed, had been imposing on the veteran scientist. These responses from Estites told a disturbing tale from February 28th to April 2nd, a large proportion of them had dreamed very bizarre things. The intensity of the dreams being immeasurably stronger during the period of sculptor's delirium. Over a fourth of those who reported anything reported scenes and half sounds, not unlike those which Wilcox had described. And some of the dreamers confessed acute fear of the gigantic nameless thing, visible toward the last year. One case, which the note describes with emphasis, was very sad.
subject, a widely known architect with leanings toward theosophy and occultism, went violently insane on the date of young Wilcox's seizure and expired several months later after incessant screamings to be saved from some escaped denizen of hell. Had my uncle referred to these cases by name instead of merely by number, uh, I should have attempted some corroboration and personal investigation. But as it was, I succeeded in tracing down only a few. All of these, however, bore out the notes in full. I've often wondered if all the objects of the professor's questioning felt as puzzled as did this fraction. It's well that no explanation shall ever reach them. The press cuttings, as I intimated, touched on cases of panic, mania, eccentricity during the given period. Professor Angle must have employed a cutting bureau for the number of extracts was tremendous and the sources scattered throughout the globe. He was a nocturnal suicide in London where a lone sleeper had leaped from a window after a shocking cry. Here, likewise, a rambling letter to the editor of a paper in South America where a fanatic deduces a dire future from visions he's seen. A dispatch from California describes a theosophist colony as donning white robes and masks for some glorious fulfillment which never arrives. Whilst items from India speak guarded leave serious native unrest toward the end of March. Voodoo orgies multiply in Haiti and African outposts report ominous mutterings. American officers in the Philippines find certain tribes bothersome about this time. And New York policemen are mobbed by hysterical Levantines. On the night of March 22nd, 23. The west of Ireland, too, is full of wild rumor and legendary. A fantastic painter named Ardois Benal hangs a blasphemous dream landscape in the Paris Spring Salon of 1926. And so numerous are the recorded troubles in insane asylums that only a miracle can have stopped the medical fraternity from noting strange parallelisms and drawing mystified conclusions. A weird bunch of cuttings all told. And I can, at this date, scarcely envisage the callous rationalism for which I set them aside. But I was then convinced that young Wilcox had known of the older matters mentioned by the professor. End part one. Man, what a read. Some intense shit. Uh, Just to finish it, you get easily probably the quickest hour you ever just get sucked into a Lovecraft story. It's insane. Oh, boy. Well, we will continue that anyway in the next. Uh, hope you had enjoyed that somewhat. You know, I think I was 
<laughs> trying to change my voice, you know, a little bit, oh, kind of, you know, then this and and then to be a little bit more, you know, uh, like you know, want to, okay, like I'm talking to you, like I'm just reading a letter, you know, <laughs> a little inconsistent, you know, but uh, trying some things. So <laughs> let me let me know what you think. Uh, if you want to reach out, you know, on Indrumnity or find me on Reddit, Indrumnity uh, um, there as well. And going to start creating a bit more, maybe another platform. Uh, I do share to Tumblr, you know, here and there. I hardly write stuff or tend to it as I want. Um, well, if you want it, do it, right? So if I want it, I do it. Boom. It's that simple, isn't it? So I hope you have enjoyed this. And that you have a great evening, Halloween. <sighs> oh, man. And just take care of yourself, all right? Be well and good night.